Here's what you need to know as we continue our story this week. Last week, we saw how many of the Jewish people, including the prophet Ezekiel, were taken into exile by Babylon in the year 597 BC. This, however, was not the first group to be taken captive into Babylon, nor would it be the last. The first wave of exiles was hauled away in 605 BC. The Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar II, had just won a great battle against Egypt, and then he turned his attention on the little nation of Judah, who had aligned itself with the losing side. To avoid complete destruction, Judah's king Jehoiakim switched his allegiance and began paying tribute to Babylon. He also handed over members of the royal family and nobility as hostages. Among this group of hostages was a young man named Daniel and his three friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some monumental events took place during Daniel's lifetime. In 586 BC, Babylon completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, altering Judaism forever. And in 539 BC, Persia conquered Babylon, ushering in a new era of Medo-Persian dominance. But when Daniel looked at all this upheaval, he didn't see military power or political cunning as its cause. Daniel believed and proclaimed that Yahweh was in control over all of it, and it was his sovereignty that raised empires up and brought them back down. Uh, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel today, and uh, I promise you I want you to hear the, kind of my first few words, and uh, I had them planned before yesterday happened. I actually maybe even intended them in a little bit of a different way. It is hard to feel like a winner when you lose, isn't it? It's really hard. It's amazing how a loss can just deflate you, Um, how somehow looking at an opponent who is victorious can make you feel small and insignificant, and that usually leads to frustration, resentment. It's just really, really difficult to feel like a winner when you lose. And we're at a time in Israel's history where that just stands true. So Israel has gone through a devastating loss. Israel finds itself, many of them, in a new location. Constant reminder, you wake up. And you're no longer near Mount Zion. You're no longer in Jerusalem. You're no longer worshiping at the temple. But your home is destroyed and your place of worship is gone. And this is what's going on right now in Israel's history. And when that happens, when you live in the wake of the loss, you just feel like like maybe you're the loser. It makes you question a lot of things. It, it makes you question sometimes your commitment or what maybe, what, what, what's the point of, of, of being a part of this any longer? And that's what uh, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that's what they're going to experience in this book. Uh, if you think about it, a statement that Ashley drew attention to, it's something that I find to be uh, one, of my, one of my favorite parts of a song that we sang today. Think of this statement, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory, forever, amen. 
And yet, how many of you, when you look at the circumstances that you find yourself in the world, like you don't see that? If we're going to be honest, I, th- I think it is easier for you and I to come into this room on this day, at this time, although for some of you feel like it's an hour later, that's because it is, but you're thinking to yourself, at this time, and, and now I want to sing about, to God be the glory, to God be the glory. Sure, now. But what about tomorrow? How many of you walk into where you work, where you work, and it just doesn't feel like yours is the kingdom? How many of you walk into work singing that song? Yours is the power. <laughs> no, it works a mess. I don't sing that. It's more like nine, two, five, right? It's kind of a, <laughs> it's a totally different song. So is it, is it this place? Is it this room that does that? What is that? And I want you to think that this is what Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah had to go through. Now you might wonder, who are those three guys? It's funny to me that we know them. Now, some of you, kind of a younger audience, first, first an hour, I had no idea what I was talking about. But how many of you know of uh, Rack Shack and Benny, right? Thank you, VeggieTales, right? It's weird. Many of you know the, the VeggieTales version, but all of us know them. I mean, even as, as, as we were listening this morning, we, we announced them as who? Daniel, and then we have, um, uh, now I only remember the VeggieTale names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's not their Jewish names. That would be Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We only know them after Babylon has got a hold of them. For the most part. We know them as those names. Those are the names that we remember. Those are the names that we look back on them. We, we see the, the exile. We see their time away from home and how it kind of molds and shapes them. And so what you and I are going to do this morning is kind of look into the book of Daniel at this very important time in Israel's history and see how is it that there are some that are able to not just rise above the fray, not just avoid temptation at all costs, but what is it that Daniel and Mishael and Azariah and Hananiah, what is it that they are able to see? that allows them to be faithful in a distant place without all of the usual trappings that their, that their culture needed to worship and to love and to honor God. What was it? And, I, and we're, gonna, we're gonna see a lot of things in this text. We're gonna walk through, Daniel is, by the way, divided into like two sections. Chapters one through six, if you ever read through the book of Daniel, chapters one through six literally describes most of the stories that you know and most of the stories that we're gonna look at today. But chapter seven through 12 actually describe God's continued revelation of his eternal plan. Because one thing I love about the book of Daniel is that not only does it stand at a pivotal point in Israel's history, but it, it stands at a pivotal point in human history because it is reminding God's people that he has plans and purposes that go beyond anything you could find in the USA today. 
That there is something that God is doing that we need his revelation to understand that you and I are unable to pick up by just looking at the scoreboard to know the score of the game. We need God's answer. We need God's input because you and I, when we are reduced to understanding the time in which we live or whether or not we see ourselves as winners or losers, culturally speaking, How often do we know to look at something beyond the temporary into God's eternal word? Daniel chapter 1, this is again a period known as the exile, which is a big deal. Um, You have that that time period within Israel's history where patriarchs or fathers of the faith, people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, kind of ruled over the family. And then you have that period where they're in, uh, for 400 years, they're in, they're in uh, well, they live in Egypt, and then near the ending of that 430 some odd years, um, they find themselves in slavery, and then they wander for a while, and they finally get into the promised land. And they love to talk about, remember the exodus? Remember what God did for us? Remember the deliverance? And, and yet, the Bible actually teaches that the people will forget to say, do you remember the exodus? Because the exile will be so, so big. The, the time in which God pulls them out of the land and disciplines them in a distant land and then returns them to that land to this ultimate restoration, which you and I know it's about Jesus Christ, becomes this pivotal time in their history. And I would argue it's that pivotal time in which the Jewish people represented in our text by Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah, they're able to figure out that age-old question, how do we live in the world without being so attached to and part of the world that we become useless? We become a light that is no longer light or salt that no longer tastes. They answer that age-old question, Daniel does. And, And other people that were written during this period, Esther figures this out. Nehemiah figures this out. And so for people who live at a, at, a, at a different time, it is good for us to be able to go back and say, how do we live as part of this world that God has created, that God loves, that God sent his son for, that God is calling to redeem? How do I live a part of this world without in this world polluting me, taking over my mind, taking over my heart, taking over my will? Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 begins like this. It's going to be important for the unfolding of the rest of the story. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And then the Lord, see this is why you need insight, because if not you just read the headlines, oh that's why they won. Oh that's why they're winning. No, the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So God allowed the temple to be ransacked. God allowed the Babylonians to take those very sacred instruments, right? They took the piano and they took the wonderful drum set and they took all of these instruments and they took them back to Babylon to put them in their house of worship to say, look what we did. That's what winners do. Winners love to rub it in your face, don't they? They love to remind you how good they are. And what would be better than to take the things that that mattered most to you and we'll just take them and we'll put them in our house of worship. And, And this is what's going on. But Daniel says that all of this was done at the Lord's hand. 
And he brought them to the land of Shinar, the house of his God, and he placed these vessels, golden goblets and um, uh, objects of worship. And he placed these vessels in the treasury of his God. (laughs) To the victor goes the spoil. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family family and of the nobility, used without blemish, a good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. One of the things that King Nebuchadnezzar knew how to do, and many world conquerors know how to do this, how do we make the most of the spoils that we have? How do we take the best of this land and incorporate it into ours? How do we exploit and manipulate the circumstances around us that make us better? Some to love to just kind of stand up and go, I am victorious. But others, more of a utilitarian approach to this, and that was Nebuchadnezzar's approach. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and says, what I want to do is I want to take the best of you, the most of you, and I want to incorporate you into our culture so that our culture will even be stronger. It was diversity before diversity was cool. So what happens to these young men? What happens in 605 when Daniel and the rest of these young men find themselves far from home? Do you know what that's like to go far from home to get educated? You know what that's like to be completely uprooted and transplanted and put in a new place with new freedoms? That's the one thing I love about college is that people go, I'm far from home. I really need to act responsibly and settle down. Think of the newfound freedom that they would have felt. Think of the resentment that would have existed in their mind. Not these young men. Interestingly enough, this this challenge to be in the world and not of the world is going to have a profound influence on them. You know, I I I I just think it's it's good it's good to be honest. It's good to be in that sense transparent. Um, I don't know how, how vulnerable this will make me, but I just, I, I want to come out, I don't know if I've ever mentioned this in a sermon, you've probably got hidden hints and, and, and uh, um, uh, I guess, I've revealed this at some level. Uh, years ago, I decided that I wanted to cheer for a, a particular college football team, and it was, the year was 1984, and so I looked on the landscape and I decided I am going to become a Miami fan. So anybody who really knows me knows that I am a Miami Hurricane fan. I love to cheer for OSU because I love Stillwater, and I, I, I do. I like the Cowboys and all that kind of stuff, but I really am a Miami Hurricanes fan. And let me tell you how I chose that because it really does fit into just how natural it is for us to want to be with a winner. It's 1984. We won the national championship in 1983. I know you know them as Thug U, but I just thought they were like exuberant youths. Plus, I was like 15 years old, and that was just cool, Right? And if I'm going to pick somebody, I remember wondering, who am I going to pick? Who will I pick? I think I, think I might pick. And I, I really, one of the reasons why I had to pick somebody was college football was not a real big part of Canadian culture. I don't know if you know that or not. And for one of the reasons why, it's just really, really hard to just, when McGill is playing McMaster University, it's just kind of hard to get excited about McGill versus McMaster. The names say a lot, by the way. Okay. We dream of great schools like Harvard and Yale at football. So that's kind of how it is, right? And so I thought, if I'm going to pick somebody, I'm going to pick a winner. And Miami won in 1983. And then they, they, they got this incredible coach from Oklahoma State University, by the way. Didn't even know about it then. But wherever that is, I love the name, Jim Johnson. Reminds me of my favorite NASCAR driver, Jimmy Johnson. 
You see the trend here? Do you see the trend? And I remember thinking to myself, if I'm going to pick someone, I want to pick a winner. We won. One in 83, one in 87, one in 81, one in 89, one in 91, one in 2000. I mean, I loved it. And, but we've gone through these seasons of darkness where I don't even really like to talk about it. I really don't want to have anything to do with it. I know what it's like, and I'm fascinated as I get older, I'm fascinated how somehow my understanding of myself is shaped by how they do. Anybody know how I feel? The things that matter most to us, I mean, it's easy for me to just stand back and go, that makes no sense. But the older I get, the more that I realize, agree or disagree, I think I can understand if you're, if you're a Republican or if you're a Democrat and that's who you are and that's what you care about most, then when your candidate wins, you're a winner. And when your candidate loses, a lot of the anger and a lot of the frustration is somehow you get dragged into that. And I think that's one of the reasons why as Christian culture moves from a place of prominence, a place of um, at least respectableness into not so respectable, into not popular. It has, it has an effect on us, doesn't it? It begins to shape us. It begins to make us feel like, I think I'm going to sit in the back of this class. I know what this professor is going to be like and I used to argue these things, but now everybody looks at me like I'm the one that's crazy. I'm just, I'm just going to get a grade. You been there? And is that how Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah are going to respond? Back in at verse 3, because we're going to need it. So the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and nobility, used without blemish and good appearance, skillful in wisdom, endowed in knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, Babylonia, you. Not the you, Babylonia, you, Okay. And as this continues, the king assigned them a daily portion of the food, that'll make more sense here in a moment, that the king ate, and the wine that he drank, and they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand, in a, in a sense, to be evaluated. It was a kind of our time to, to make our, a defense of our thesis, a, um, to defend kind of who we are and what we are about. And among these men were Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs, Ashpenaz, gave them these names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. One of the first things that Babylonians did to kind of move people outside of their comfort zone was they would give them a new name to help them feel more at home and to help them recognize it's going to be better if you fit in than stand out. See, there's two different ways that we can deal with the world around us. One of them is to just say, I don't want any part of this. There are movements within Christianity and in other religions. I don't want anything to do with the world. It's hard to do that consistently. I just want to kind of stand on the outside and critique it and to complain about it, to be frustrated by it, and to do my best, even though I'm not doing it perfectly, to be different than the world around me. And then there are those on the other side of this spectrum and they say, no, the, the way that we 
the, the way that we um, make, make an impact, the way that we change the world, the way that we shape the world is to become engaged in it. Like, how do we, instead of just standing back and critiquing it or divorcing ourselves from it completely, no, we need to be in there. We need to be involved. We need to be a part of academia and part of the political process. And if we can get in there, then maybe we can keep this ship headed in the right direction. And, and both have been constant responses throughout history in terms of how the people or God are going to engage the culture around them. What does it mean to live in the world and yet to not be a part of the world? And what we actually see in these young men in the book of Daniel is an ability to know when to go, sure, 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 no, you need my driver's license? Need to change my name on it? Yeah, I can do that. And then to say, but I'm not doing that. They're able to come alongside the king and say, hey, we would love to help you organize the people. We would love to help you with economic strategy. We would love to help you with these things, but we're not doing that. I'll tell you, especially for those of you that are in that process of having God in his wisdom and in his spirit to begin to form you into some very unique and very interesting people while you're at college do you know when to give up your driver's license and when to go, but I'm not giving up that? Daniel, chapter one, verse eight, notice what happens here. But Daniel, so all of this is being said, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that the king drank. And this is why it's important to know, what is the food and the wine? The food and the wine would, would, would fit into a, a time and a day where not only might it be not kosher for them to eat, but more than that, it was food and it was drink that was offered up to a pagan deity, these pagan deities that actually helped Babylon to conquer Israel. And so instead of going all in to Babylonian culture, instead of saying, yeah, like I'm here and I'm going to take in every experience that I can have, no, Daniel had discernment. And Daniel became resolved. And he said, here, I don't mind going along with this process. You can educate me for three years. But you're not going to educate me on your terms. But instead, I'm going to stay committed to who God is and what God desires for me. I will not eat what you're eating. And I will not drink what you're drinking. And it is distinguishing themselves, most likely, from some of the religious practices of the Babylonians. They, by God's wisdom, were somehow able to help, to help others see where the line was. And in doing this, others are greatly encouraged. So as you know, this whole process was set in motion so that the king, and particularly his eunuch Ashpenaz, could actually notice how their training would make the best graduates. And when Daniel and the others decided to stand outside of it, to be different than everybody else, it really concerned Ashpenaz. He said, listen, like I really believe this food, which probably became the blessing of the gods, I really think if you're not a part of this, I'm the one that's going to get in trouble. If I graduate a class that is just not up to par, my neck is on the line. And Daniel says, let's just try this out. Give us food. Give us water to drink. And instead of us doing it your way, do it our way and see what God does. By the way, this is, how many of you have heard of the Daniel diet? Okay. Yeah. 
oh, it's about fruits and vegetables. This is how intelligent Daniel was. You do realize that if you make it just about food, if you make it just about dietary genius, you miss the miracle. This isn't just a healthier way to live. This is a divine way to rebel. And after a period of testing, what happens? God intervenes on their behalf. They trust God with fruits and vegetables and water, and they find themselves better than everyone else. God comes through by them knowing when to trust God and not to bow down to Caesar. And the stories continue. Daniel chapter 3 This is where it's kind of interesting that Daniel disappears. This is the story of the young man in the fiery furnace. So this is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is, yes, the Veggie Tales great story. And it is during this particular time that these three young men are told that when the music plays, you must all bow down to me. This is what winners do. Winners don't only like to rub it in your face. They love it when you bow down to them. They want you to admit their greatness. It's what making, makes being a loser so much more difficult. And so these young men decide, yeah, it really doesn't matter what you say. We're not bowing down. Yeah, but if you don't bow down, you're going to be thrown inside of a fiery furnace. Okay, well, you do what you got to do, and I'll do what I got to do. You need to put me in a furnace? Put me in a furnace. One thing we're not going to do is bow down. Here is how they describe it. Verse 16 of chapter 3, one of the great 316s of the Bible, actually. I love this, this, this phrase, this verse, this resolve. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, he's a king, so we should respect him. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Like, I know you want me to give an explanation as to why I'm not going to bow down to you. It's almost like, hey, king, I just need you to realize, small k, king. And, and, and we're able to see through small K king to capital K king. And so we, we, we live different than you do. This is one thing that I believe Christian people have lost today. Is A, knowing when to be different. Knowing how to be different. To be able to see through small K kings and capital K kings. Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Well, don't you know I'm the king? And don't you know I could throw you into a fiery furnace? Look at verse 17. If this be so, that you want to throw us into a fire, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, I love that. I love that. Our God is able Yeah, no, 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 I don't need to hear the story about how you destroyed Jerusalem. I I see that different than you, king. I don't need to know about how, yeah, you totally took the temple to the ground. I know the story. Yeah, I've seen the goblets. I'm telling you, you don't know what happened behind that story. You don't know why it came down. You don't understand how you got on the throne, O king. Like, you don't get it. But I do. Like, I understand. Like, I get that you see me like a loser. You see me as someone who is weak and somebody who is insignificant and somebody who is utterly dependent upon you, O king, but you don't see it the way it truly is. Look at verse 18. But if not, meaning if God should choose to not deliver me, 
O king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You need to throw us into a furnace, our God can deliver us. Even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow down. You do what you want to do, we will do what we have to do. This is what it means to recognize God. This is what it means to live by faith. This is what it means to be different. This is what it means to be faithful. This is what it means to be in the world and yet not of the world. What's your name? Shadrach. What will you not do? I will not bow down to that statue. It's who I am. You can change my name, but you can't change me. Next famous story that we know about, back to Daniel on the scene, and and Daniel finds himself um, in in, in chapter 5, Daniel finds himself uh, in, in, in... kind of on the sidelines a little bit, and there's a new king that has actually come into place. Uh, that's the, what's interesting about kings and, and, and winners is they, they just kind of change season after season after season. And so everyone who's had like winning knows what it's like to be losing, and most people that know what it's like to be losing sometimes know what it's like to be winning. And, and so it's that up and down that you cannot trust. And here we find ourselves in this instance where the king is now enjoying all that he has. And he takes those, those vessels that we learned about earlier in chapter 1 that are in the house of his God. And they're, they're celebrating, they're drinking. Um, it's, a, it's a big party that the king of Babylon is trying to celebrate with. And it's a little bit of the rubbing it in the Jewish people's face kind of a moment. Look at all the gods that we've conquered. Look at all the nations that we've actually conquered. And then into this party, into this unsuspecting moment, God reaches in with his hand and then just scribbles something on the wall. And it terrifies the small K king. I don't understand it. What is this? What is this? I want to know what it is. And he calls the wisest. I need you to tell me what that is. And, and, and all the other graduates from Babylonia, you had no, I have no idea what that is. Call Daniel. He'll know what it is. There, there's Daniel. Walks in the, 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 the special vessels that they are profaning, that they are degrading. King says, tell me what the writing on the wall is. Tell me what it means. Tell me what, 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 what kind of significance does that actually have. Daniel, if you do this, I, I will give you money. I will give you power. I will give you prestige. That, that's what winners do, by the way. They try to buy other people out, don't they? I love what Daniel says. (laughs) Notice his name. It's not Belteshazzar, it's Daniel. Let your gifts be for yourself. Again, you cannot buy me. And give your reward to another. But nevertheless, I will read this writing to the king to make known to him the interpretation because you can't get it from a newspaper. You can't get it from your most educated. You need God's revelation. You need God's spirit. You need insight from somewhere other than here, other than now to understand what's going on. One of the most exciting things about being a Christian and looking at a complicated, difficult world that is lost and confused and angry is when God reaches in with his hand and writes a word to us. He says this, O king, 
The Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. See, that's what the king needed to know. This is exactly, this is exactly how I got here. You think your dad was bigger and stronger? You think that your dad was smarter, but you don't understand is there is something else that is moving throughout human history. To be a follower of Yahweh God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, his Messiah, is to understand that God is the ultimate author, the ultimate framer, the ultimate judge, the ultimate ruler of the world. And then to live in light of that. Do you know that? Like that at its very core is what is always meant to be part of the people of God. To see things from his perspective and not just a worldly one. He begins to say, listen, and and, and when your dad blew it, when your dad decided that he was going to become more proud and more arrogant, God humbled him. And you knew that story. You knew that your dad lived like an animal for a long time. You knew that God humbled him. And then you also know that when finally your dad admitted that God is the true king, that is when God restored him. And you knew all of that. And in spite of the fact that you knew all of that, you chose to have this party, to drink and eat from these vessels. You chose to mock God while well, he stepped in and he wrote a little le- letter to you. And it basically says this, Mene, mene, tekel parson. Which means, when translated, and what's weird is, I bet you they could understand the words, but they didn't understand the implications of the words. Mene, mene, tekel parson just to be translated is, you have been weighed and you're a lightweight. God has weighed you and you're insignificant. You've been found wanting. Yeah, but what does that mean? I'm the king. (laughs) What it means is, is you're really not the king. And this night, God is going to judge you. And this night, the kingdoms are going to move and shift. This very night, this very night when you are feeling like you're at the, 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 the pinnacle of your career, you're at the top of everything that you could possibly have ever hoped or ever wanted, you are about to be exposed as a weak, dependent human with a really cool set of clothes and a throne. Verses 22 and 23, I love this. Here's what he exposes And you, his son, Belshazzar, you've not humbled your heart, just like your father, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And that very night, everything came crashing down. And all of a sudden, instead of it being Babylon, it was now known as the Persian Empire, the Persian and the Medes Empire. It's amazing how quickly champions become losers and losers become champions. It's like someone else is actually organizing the game. And then our favorite story found in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, we know it is the story of Daniel in the lion's den. It sounds a lot like the story of the bowing down to the idol, except this is when there is this moment, only, only the king, only the king can be prayed to. And interestingly enough, when Daniel hears this news in chapter 6, verse 10, When Daniel hears that the the law has been passed, making it illegal to express your faith the way that you know how to express your faith. Look at how it says in verse 10. 
And when Daniel knew that the document, the decree, the law outlawing him had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber, open towards Jerusalem, not afraid that others can see, oh king, I have no need to answer you for this. Oh, you're going to throw me in a lion's den? Sure, the God that I serve, I think that's where he learned some of this speech, the God that I serve can rescue me from the lion's den, but even if he doesn't, I'm not going to not pray. Look at this. He got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You know what this means, right? Yeah, it means I'm going to pray. No, 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 but you know what it really means? Yeah, I'm going to pray again later. No, what are you going to do after that? I'm going to pray again. Well, you do know we're going to throw you in a lion's den. Okay, you do what you got to do. I've got to pray. Like, I got to give thanks to God. You know that could cost you your life? Sure. You know it could cost you your job? Sure. You know it could cost you some friendships? Yep. You know it could cost you some friends, even the greatest friends of all, Facebook friends. Sure. Because why? Two very powerful texts in the book, and I just want to read them to you. Uh, It's good to not just read the narrative or the stories about what happens, but one of the best things that you can do in, in, in Bible books that have both story and song is to read the, the, the song or the poem or the uh, kind of the, the, the doxology, the praise to God. In Daniel chapter 2, what, what allows Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah to live like this? Because they know this. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom wisdom and might, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. You need a Bible to get that kind of stuff. Because if not, you can just be tempted to evaluate and to weigh your life in scales other than God's. And it's really, really hard to feel like a winner when it seems like you're losing. The most high rules the kingdoms of men and he gives it to whomever he will. That's one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Because I I, I look at the rise of the Roman Empire as I read through history. I look at those moments where I see empires rising or falling. Earlier this year, when I found myself in western Poland and thinking about the the times on January or on September 1st, 1939, as as, as Blitzkrieg and, and lightning war just kind of rolls out of Germany into Poland. And then finally they're liberated only to be enslaved again under the Soviet Union. And to just see how that demoralizes a nation. How do you ever feel like you're winning? But it is the Most High that rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever he will. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth account as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or ever say to him, what have you done? Did you hear that? For all those preachers or friends that love to give you the right or the prerogative or the freedom or even the boldness to complain to God. One of the kings 
Actually was warned against that. And finally, after being incredibly humbled, said, there is no one that can stay your hand. There's no one that can force you, God, to do anything. There's no one that can hold you accountable. The real truth is, no one can say to God, what have you done? For he alone reigns supreme. And why does that matter? Because that alone teaches us when to stand and to be resolved and when to say, for the glory of God, I choose to become a part of the city that I'm a part of, to become a part of this wonderful state that I get to be a part of, to be part of this incredible nation that I get to be a part of, to be a part of this incredible world that God has made and he's in the process of redeeming. Like I'm not here to fight against it for I fight against the rulers and the powers of this dark age, not against flesh and blood, for God has sent his son to redeem this world and so I'm willing to engage this world. But I will not bow down. I will not worship the things that this worships and you cannot buy me off with money or fame or popularity. Instead, my mind is set. We need to look into these moments of important power where God is faithful. At the time of testing in Daniel chapter 1, what do we see? That God is faithful. When these young men enter into the furnace, what do we see? That God steps in and is faithful. In Daniel 5, for the writing on the wall, what do we see? God is faithful to his word, no matter what everyone else might feel like. In the lion's den, in Daniel 6, what do we see? God is faithful, which then reminds us that if dependence upon God is our goal, Dependence upon God is our goal, then weakness, weakness is our advantage. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but you're Canadian. It's easy for you to say weakness being an advantage. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm so grateful. I don't know if it was original with him. Alistair Begg is the one that used that, one of my favorite preachers. I needed to hear that statement. If dependence, particularly dependence on God, if that is our goal, then weakness Apparent weakness, like worshiping someone that was killed on a cross, being on the outside of culture, living at risk of fiery furnaces and lion's den, being somehow misunderstood, labeled, mocked, ridiculed. If dependence upon God is our goal, then weakness in those instances is truly an advantage. John knows what it's like to be Daniel. The Bible ends in a very similar place as the book of Daniel finds itself in. John, on a losing team, finds himself under the great power of the Roman Empire and on this, all the other disciples have been killed. He feels like he is completely alone and he gets this revelation and it ends with these powerful words, this insight. Okay, John, I know you feel like you're losing. I know you feel like somehow you're the only one. I know you might even be tempted to give up, but let me give you insight into the way the world really is. Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. If you need something to give you power during this week, strength through weakness, greater dependence upon God. Jesus says to John, behold, I'm coming soon 
and I bring my recompense. I bring like my reward and my judgment with me to repay each one for what they have done. For I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. For he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Are you his? Are you his? Let's pray. God, thank you for your kindness to us and for the opportunity that we have to to know the truth about ourselves and our circumstances and to trust you fully. For God, you alone are worthy. No matter what it feels like, no matter what we feel like, you alone are worthy. Amen.